Geirish Nation, welcome back to the show as Notre Dame gets above the 500 win-loss record with a 44-21 resounding victory over the UNLV running Rebels. That's right, Mike and I did get the mascot correct at the end of last week's show. They are indeed the running Rebels. And most importantly this weekend, uh, very excited to officially announce Mike is married to Kristen. They are en route to Bora Bora on their honeymoon. And so with that, we bring in uh, the Mike of our friend group, another Mike, Mike 2.0, who, uh, as our friends like to say, has um, a great uh, voice for podcasting, unlike Mike 1.0, who has a great face for podcasting. Mike 2.0, welcome to the show. Thanks for guest hosting this week. Uh, you're too kind, Brett. But hey, Irish Nation, I'm happy to be here to stand in or sit in as Brett's second or third. Let's, well, let's be honest, at least his solid top five favorite mics to talk about Notre Dame football. But I'm the second mic that's most likely to answer the call when asked, and that's what really matters, and that's why I'm here. But first of all, congratulations to Mike 1.0. Hope he has a fantastic honeymoon. Congratulations as well to Gyrish Nation, who gets a one-week bye from having to hear him podcast. Sorry, Mike. But I am a little bit curious, Brett. How does this affect the whole official wife of the Gyrish Talk podcast moving forward? Yeah, that, that's true. There are now two official wives, Anne and Kristen, of, of the Gyrish Talk podcast. So big, big promotion from Kristen from official fiance to official wife of the show. Um, and actually, listeners, you're going to get a three-week break from Mike. He's on quite the long honeymoon. Um, so he's going to be out the next two weekends. And as I'm sure you can already tell from Mike 2.0, our goal on this show is to set the record for most puns in an episode. So we've got some horribly bad humor coming your way. Please bear with us. Um, before we dive into this show, the one thing I need to let you know, this is the first and only time that a Michigan alumni will will be on the show. Mike 2.0 went to Notre Dame in undergrad, um, and, and we were friends all the way through since I think pretty much like first month of college. Uh, but he did go to Michigan uh, Medical School to, to earn his doctorate degree. Um, so Dr. Mike is, uh, you know, an enemy in one sense for the Wolverines, a friend in the other with, with his Notre Dame degree in hand. But with that, we're going to get into the show. We're going to go over the UNLV game, recap Syracuse. And then we've got a really fun data-driven third segment, or at least I think it's fun because I'm a nerd like like this with with numbers. But we look at the correlation coefficient of various efficiency metrics, basically looking at things like success rate and explosiveness and line yards and havoc, all, all these stats that we always talk about on the show and really lay out how do they affect how many yards an offense gets, how many points per play an offense gets, what your SP plus rating is like, do these really matter? Um, and, you know, not, not to give away the whole show, they do. It's, it's why we talk about them, but some interesting learnings in the third segment. So stick around for that. And with that, let's dive into the UNLV game. Overall, they played a, a really good game and, and on all three phases. You know, there's, there's work to do on all three phases, but there was really big highs today on all three phases. And, and they all played at points really, really well. And they all played at points not so well, you know, that we have to improve. But um, that's the reality of, of, of football. Like, that's where we are as a team. And, and we have to continue to better. Notre Dame wins by the widest margin of victory on the season, 44-21 over a really injury-depleted 
under-talented UNLV squad that, that came into town. And despite the 23-point victory, which actually wasn't enough to cover the 26.5-point spread, it felt like another frustrating win. The, the score was lopsided, sure, but going up against a UNLV team with a backup quarterback, all of the breaks that went Notre Dame's way with blocked punts and sacks and just a, a lot of really good things, 44-21 just kind of left a bittersweet taste in, in the mouth despite the score. Mike, what were your initial reactions from from this game? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you, Brett. I mean, let me tell you what I saw looking at this game. Our offense did absolutely everything they needed to do in order to win this game, which, as it turns out, was next to nothing. We'll be clear that they did not need to perform for us to win this game. And that exceedingly low bar was, thankfully, met. Barely. They put us at a comfortable 30-7 to lead by the half, which let us coast through the second half without having to stress too much, so that was nice. Uh, but really, they barely had to show up, but that was because of absolutely how dominant our defense and our special teams were. There were two blocked punts in a row. Like, are you serious? Like, even then, though, even starting at the 14-yard line after that second blocked punt, we still had to settle for a field goal, and that's that element that was still frustrating for us. But I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and j- just to put some stats on that, our average starting field position in this game was the 46 yard line. Like we had 54 yards to go to get a touchdown on the average drive, and we've talked about this before. We had 11 trips into what CollegeFootballData.com likes to call a scoring opportunity, so getting within 40 yards of the end zone. And we averaged four points per drive, so barely one point better than, than a field goal. Um, you mentioned those two block punts. We had back-to-back drives where we settled for field goals with a total of nine yards. So in a game where, you know, we had all of these opportunities on block punts, on, you know, there, there are times where we'd have a three and out and then a great punt return. And to your point, if the offense did nothing, we were going to get three points. Well, there were a lot of drives where the offense did nothing and we got three points. And really, without Mike Mayer in the first half, it, it could have been even worse than that. And so that's really where I thought it was 23-7 after the first quarter. And I felt like it could have been 35-7. I thought at halftime it could have been 50-7. to Like, this was one of those games where Alabama goes and puts 60, 70 points on the board. It's because they absolutely take advantage of dominating special teams and, and defensive plays when it happens. And, and it just didn't in this game. Yeah, and hearing you talk about the defense raises a question that I've had for for you and Mike for a while on Irish Talk. It seems like you and Mike 1.0 haven't really talked a lot about Drew Pine on the show, but come on, what's Notre Dame without amping up a little uh, QB controversy on the team? A lot of people (laughs) covering Notre Dame football were saying a few weeks ago that maybe he should have just started over Buckner to start the season. But I don't know. The last few games have been a bit of a mess. I mean, 14 for 28 for 205 yards. That's 50%. Not to mention another interception on one of the few throws he managed to get out of that tunnel vision to Mike Mayer. What do the advanced stats say, Brett? How bad was he really? It, it's interesting. We actually probably got to come back and do a segment on pro football focus grades. We, we use them a lot. We reference, frankly, their stats sometimes more than their grades, although we talk about their grades a lot. 
And we've said a lot of times this year, actually, I think mostly with our secondary, where we just don't agree with the grades. We think that players are grading out better than what you might see in pro football focus. This might be the opposite. Pro football focus said Pine graded out at 77 in this game, which is a pretty high level starter um, being in the high 70s. And you're right. It was across the board, pretty disappointing effort in the passing game. And he had open guys like we've, you know, harped on Tom Reese enough in this show. I've I've got some criticism in this game we we can get to, but he had a couple of wide open throws. Um, Chris Tyree was wide open on a wheel route. Um, Lorenzo Styles Jr. is wide open on a deep out route at at the, um, at the goal line. Um, he overthrew Braden Lindsay on a wide open seam route. So Drew Pine left points on the board and maybe what's worse, four of his 14 completions were shuffle passes that were basically jet sweeps or the quote unquote pop pass. Without those, he's 10 for 24 in this game. Um, that just doesn't cut it. I, I know he's the backup, but he's been starting four or five games. I've, I've got some thoughts on scheme to try to put him in an easier position to succeed, but some combination of receivers continue to not get open. This was a game where I thought he missed a number of throws. I thought he missed a couple against Stanford and that act, you know, some combination of guys not getting open and Drew Pine not accurately getting them the ball really felt like it held us back in this game, especially when it gets down to the red zone. You just can't miss open guys when you get it in, in kind of a short field situation and thought that the passing game and or the lack thereof was really the difference between us settling for field goals and us getting in the end zone. Yeah. Let me follow up with one more question about Pine. I mean, I was originally excited for Pine. There's some great tape on him from the Manning camp where he was throwing absolute bombs. He's He's got the arm. I'm not going to dispute that. But right now it seems like he can't hit the broad side of a barn unless that barn has a giant 87 painted on its side. <laughs> I mean... Against Stanford, he completely overthrew Lindsay, as you were saying. He also missed Merriweather on another would-be touchdown. For a second, I thought I missed a field goal attempt watching his pass almost sail through the uprights. <laughs> rather than hitting Lindsay in the numbers, rather than hitting Tyree for what could have been a touchdown, Styles close to the pylon. I mean, is this just what Drew Pine football looks like? Should Tommy Reese not take as much heat if we're just missing these easy layups? Yeah, look, you've hit on it. Definitely missed a couple open touchdowns in the Stanford game and and here again in this game. This game seemed more glaring just because of the frequency of them. In the Stanford game, it felt like the only two easy throws he had he missed, but it's not on the quarterback to only have two easy throws. And, And so it's easy to really start nitpicking a quarterback if he's only set up for success a couple times in a game. Um, you'd like him to be two for two. I'd rather him be five for 10. Like, let's get 10 opportunities, not two. And so one of the things I was thinking about, thinking back to last year, remember at the bye week, we we were five games into the season. And something that made me think about this, Pete Sampson kind of wrote an article after this game where where he basically said, we need to accept this team as who they are. Like their offensive struggles, this is now the team. This is the 11 guys. Not much is going to change between game six and game 12. Well, last year after game five, in the bye week, Brian Kelly went to Tom Reese and said, we, we need to figure this out. They went to the drawing board and they said, okay, we've now discovered Jack Cohn's not a mobile quarterback and he can't avoid sacks. I don't know why it took them five games to realize that, but it <laughs> took them five games to realize that. And they said, we can't have long pass routes where it's more likely Jack Cohn will be under pressure. So we need to have quick, you know, one, two second drops 
get the ball out, throw the ball five yards, throw the ball two yards, get the ball out as quick as we can. Cone won't get sacked, and he'll be more successful. It feels like something similar needs to happen with Drew Pine. On medium and deep throws, so balls more than 10 yards downfield, Drew Pine is only completing 42% of his passes, and it's been every single one of his interceptions this year. On throws under 10 yards or behind the line of scrimmage, he has four touchdowns, zero interceptions, and is completing 79% of his throws. So he goes from having um, an interception problem to no interceptions and doubling the number of um, passes he's completing. For shorter yardage, sure, but it's still six yards per attempt, and he's got an 80% um, completion rate, way more consistent, way more accurate. What we've actually seen happen now in these last two games is the depth has gone the other way. So in UNC and BYU, games where we all thought Drew Pine played really great, the average depth of target, so how far down the field was the receiver when Pine threw the ball, was seven and a half yards. Again, Stanford and UNLV, that's crept all the way up to 10. Um, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but what that really means is just more deep shots, more long throws, more out routes to the boundary, and it, it really adds up in these numbers where as soon as Pine starts going 10, 15, 20 yards downfield, he's not an accurate throw. You're right. He's got all the arm strength in the world, but he's not an accurate throw right now. But we know on short throws, this isn't Brandon Wimbush. Like Brandon Wimbush couldn't complete the easy pass. That is not Drew Pine. Drew Pine can't complete the 20, 30-yard pass, but he can complete the short ones. Dial them up. Like, like just have more short throws. So I think it's a combination here. Drew Pine, there's a reason why he was our backup. There's a reason why he didn't win the starting job, despite getting playing time last year. Um, but also, I think there's just still this element where Tom Reese needs to put him in a better position to succeed. I agree with you there. I think that I was a little bit hard on him when I uh, opened up this segment. But I think it's also important to take a look at who's on the receiving end of the ball, too. I mean, think about his success rate on these short plays, but also think about who he's passing to on those shorter plays and compare that to the wide receiver room that we've got that he's targeting on the longer throws. For sure. All right. Well, let me ask one more question on the offense. I know that you're the president of the Tommy Reese Play Calling Fan Club. But what'd you think of the second half where he just said, let's end this game, and, and he went run only? I'm going to read you a short poem that I've named The Throw Not Taken. I think that's the Robert <laughs> Frost poem, right? Or The Route Less Traveled. Anyway, I don't know. Ready? All right, it goes. Digs run, digs run, digs run, digs run. Digs run, digs run, Tyree run. Shuffle past the styles. Digs run, digs run, digs run. Tyree run, Tyree run. While that's maybe not the Odyssean epic, that took almost as long in the game as it did for me to read it out to you right now. It took seven minutes off the clock. It let the defense rest a bit, and it helped secure the lead, but I don't know. I'm okay using run plays strategically like that. I definitely want to see more from the offense, though, especially on these short passing plays and screens like we were just talking about. But what do you think? Yeah, so first off, great job with the poem. I'm having a hard time not losing it over here. Um, I really try to not read too much into games like UNLV, um, and especially in garbage time. And, and we were essentially in garbage time where Notre Dame was up three scores. And so whether a team gets back into it or you step on your throat, or like I try to not over read in, into those moments. I do think, though, 
what you try to look into this game is were you able to, to break your bad tendencies, right? And so were you able to do the things where you've been struggling, but against an easy opponent, you did well? Like that's at least a step in the right direction. Here, settling for the running plays, I'm never going to blame uh coaching staff that says, let's get out of here injury-free. Let's shorten this game. We're up. We've got two really big games coming up against Syracuse and Clemson. Um, so let's just get out of here and, and go run the ball and take seven, eight minutes off the clock. Like that makes sense to me. So I'm not going to criticize that too much. Although even on the drive after that, so that was a 13 play drive. The next drive, we also ran the ball or did a shuffle pass on eight straight plays. So there were two drives where like, we just said, that's it. We're not passing anymore for the rest of this game. Um, I was actually though, it goes back to like when we are passing the ball. Drew Pine was four for five on play action in this game. On the season, he's now completed 27 of 37 throws on play action for a 73% completion rate, five touchdowns, and no interceptions. On non-play action, he's completing just 60% of his throws and has all of his interceptions. And so I said earlier, if you remove shuffle passes, um, and I'm now going to remove play action from that. So on a non-play action overhanded throw so removing his underhand throw so his <laughs> overhand non-play action throws he was six for 19 against unlv um he was four for five on play action it's just so obvious why are we only calling that five times a game like you can't tell me that we're using the run to set up the pass and then only call play action five times a game when this was a game where the run game was working like we were very successful logan Diggs had the best game by a Notre Dame running back this entire season. So I'm not criticizing RTDB to go ice the game, but this offense has some things they do really, really well. They're getting pretty decent in the run game. We've seen that now um, in, in really several games where they've really used the run game to, to finish a game. What I don't understand is if you have this play and play action that is working at such a high clip, you've got to call it more. And this isn't about like these huge gambles and you get, you know, the defense to sucker in and you have this wide open deep throw. That's not what play action is in modern college football. In modern college football, play action is to get the linebacker to just second guess by one step before they go defend Mike Mayer. It's getting the safety to just pause one second to make sure it's not a run before going and providing safety help on Braden Lindsay and Lorenzo Styles. It's getting the blitzer off the edge to, you know, just second guess for one second to make sure they don't need to crash down and run support. And that half second does two things. It gives Pine a little more space to read and a slight advantage in reading the defense. And two, it keeps him out of pressure. On play action throws, he's only been under pressure on 7% of play action throws. On non-play action, he's been under pressure 20% of the time. So runs... Against UNLV, I'm all for it. If we go and try to run the ball 21 straight plays against Syracuse and Clemson, like we will not win. It's not a sustainable part of our offense. Deep throws is not a sustainable part of our offense. They can be a part of it, but right now that's like the only thing we're trying. And it's just, it just continues to be a frustrating position to be president of the Tom Reese play calling fan club. <laughs> as, as Mike, you, you just, uh, named me. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take that position on the committee. Um, but there's, there's just things that this offense does really well and it's, it's running the ball and it's short passing game. And right now we're just not, and play action. And we're just not doing those things with a lot of regularity or a lot of balance. 
other than running the ball to, to you know, ice a game when we have a lead, it just feels like that's not going to be sustainable down the stretch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that it's important to look at it like that. Number one, the play action passing with Drew Pine is part of what gets me excited about him. Number two, Brett, I would really love to see you rerun the stats when he was six for 19 on non-play action overhand throws against UNLV. Could you further stratify for all of the non-play action overhand throws on a Tuesday against teams wearing red where the temperature is below 30? I just, I just really feel like there's something to be learned there. Hey, the underhand throws and the jet sweeps are working, all right? So let, let's keep those going, too. I, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue. But, all right, we, we've hammered the offense enough. I, I, I want to move on to the defense. Now, I have a feeling that you're going to say the defense dominated all of the advanced stats. I mean, we all saw that UNLV failed to convert a single third down, but I also saw our defense get gouged for big plays. The four big plays this game went for 180 yards, or 60% of UNLV's offense for the entire day. I mean, similar to Notre Dame's offense, it just feels a little frustrating to see 21 points on the board from a not-so-great offense that couldn't figure out which of their two backup quarterbacks was less bad. I don't know. How do you assess the defense, Brett? Yeah, you're right. The advanced stats showed a really dominating performance. Um, UNLV had just 2.3 line yards in their running game. Um, offenses want that to be in the threes, so all the way down at 2.3 means they just weren't getting any push against their defensive line. They had just a 35% success rate, so basically their ability to stay on schedule is only one in every three plays. Offenses want that closer to 50% or in the high 40s. And then Notre Dame had a ridiculous 27% havoc rate. Um, if you're generating havoc on, you know, anything in the high teens is good. So one in four plays Notre Dame was disrupting with a tackle for loss, a pass breakup, a sack. Um, the red zone continues to be the Achilles heel, though. It's just the one metric where Notre Dame hasn't done well. We rank second to last in the country in red zone defense, giving up touchdowns on 82% of opponents' trips to the red zone. In this game, UNLV was three for three. But unlike our offense, I tend to believe, and, and this is an opinion, that Al Golden is doing the right things to put our defense in a position to succeed. Um, there's busted coverages, but this doesn't feel like Brian Van Gorder busting co- coverages where, you know, we're just doing these really complicated schemes. This is just guys like not making plays at the right time. You know, even on the last two red zone trips they had when they scored touchdowns in the second half, we had them on fourth downs and they went for it and we dialed up the right defensive play. And on both of them, J.D. Bertrand was in a position to make a tackle on fourth down in the backfield and missed both those tackles. Not trying to pick on J.D. Bertrand. Missed tackles happen. But we had the opportunity to get off the field and make stops there. The coaches put those players in a good position, and, and they just didn't make fundamental plays. And, and that's football. That that happens. But where I'm going with that is what our defense is doing feels sustainable. Like we, we talked about this on last week's show where all of these high powered offenses we've played, their worst performances of the year have come against us. Um, against UNC and BYU, maybe to a lesser extent. Now this UNLV game is really the defense kind of giving up points in what's pretty darn close to garbage time, if not full on garbage time. And so it, 
just feels like a lot of the advanced metrics in Havoc, which has gotten a lot better since the first couple of games of the year, success rate, line yards, like, like the defense is doing the right things um, to dominate games, and we're just not seeing it on points, but it feels like you're on the cusp of seeing this defense put it all together and keep points off the board. The last stat I'll throw out, 10 of the 14 drives that UNLV had were three and outs, and an 11th drive was a turnover on downs after just one first down. So on 11 of 14 drives, our defense was as dominating as you could possibly be. Like UNLV got nothing on 11 of 14 drives. The other three drives resulted in touchdowns following big plays. So like that's frustrating, but that feels like if you're dominating someone for 11 of 14 drives, you can clean up the big plays you're, you're blowing. Like that's easier to clean up. But you're doing the right things to clearly go and dominate a team. You're just not finishing games, finishing drives. That's a lot different than, say, our offense that just doesn't feel sustainable, doesn't feel like they're doing anything where drive on, you know, drive after drive you can count on. It feels like over the course of multiple drives, you can pretty much count on our defense to figure it out and get the stops when they need to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are all good points, which brings me to – my final question for the UNLV game. And it was just going to be, you know, are we being too negative? Are we being too judgy? I feel like I've been a bit of a Debbie Downer on the game that we won pretty comfortably. I mean, we won 44 to 21. Yeah, we didn't cover the 26 and a half point spread, but we were pretty close. And the game was never really in doubt. So it's not a stressful game, which we're used to by now. For a team that struggled all year, it kind of seems like maybe this is a positive. Definitely a positive. Um, I 100% agree. It's a great win. It's one of those games where if we would be um, five and one, maybe even four and two heading into this game, I don't think anyone's thinking twice about some of the stuff we're nitpicking on. I think the reason why we covering this team need to nitpick on these things is the red flags that led to losses in Marshall and Cal, although we won, Stanford and um, Ohio State, but really probably more the Stanford and Marshall games. Those red flags that were really the Achilles heels in those games weren't really better in this game, right? Like the passing game wasn't really better. Getting Lindsey and Styles and Tyree in space weren't better in this game. Our red zone defense wasn't better in this game. We just came up with a lot of really big plays from Foskey and Mayer. And so a really fun win, a big win. I think it's great just for these guys to feel a 23-point comfortable victory at home, to feel like they can go out and, you know, you're right, they didn't cover the spread, but a 26.5-point spread when you win by 23, like, you're pretty much right on top of what Vegas thought you would do. So to go out and meet expectations, which is something this team hasn't done with regularity, I think net-net should be viewed as a positive for this team. We just need to continue to observe, like, are are we fixing the Achilles heels? And I don't know if we can use this as a data point to say those are moving in the right direction. We haven't mentioned Mike Mayer yet. Mike Mayer went for six catches, 115 yards, um, was the lone bright spot, maybe alongside Logan Diggs, but for sure the brightest spot once again. We mentioned Foskey a couple times on his two-block punts. We haven't yet mentioned that he had three sacks. So our two preseason All-Americans showed up in this game. It's a little scary to think about what this game looks like if Foskey doesn't have two block punts and Mike Mayer doesn't keep wearing a Superman cape. But Mike, a question for you. 
Uh, who did you think had the biggest game, Foskey or, or Mayer? Who, who would get the game ball if, if you were Coach Freeman? Well, first of all, it's not that hard to see what happens if we don't have Foskey. We only got three points off that second blocked punt, so just subtract that. No, uh, <laughs> but who, who had the better game, Foskey or Mayer? I, I mean, is that is that even a question? We're talking 115 yards and a touchdown. There's not a single doubt in my mind when I say wholeheartedly that Isaiah Foskey deserves a game ball here. Three sacks, a QB hurry, and did you not hear me when I said two blocked punts in a row? I mean, I don't know if you were watching, but that wasn't even a blocked punt. He was practically there just to catch the snap. It was an incredible game from Foskey, and it was just a, a typical Tuesday for Mike Mayer, which, to be fair, is usually all it takes to be the best player. I, I agree. I don't think I've ever seen two block punts in a game, let alone by the same player, let alone on back-to-back drives. That that was pretty awesome. A um, lot of highlight reels featuring him this week. So with that, let's move on to the Syracuse game. Yeah, I mean, the point of red zone, when you're on offense, you want to score touchdowns. On defense, you want to make them kick field goals. And um, at some points today, it was a little bit opposite, you know. But I wanted to, going into this game, I wanted to – if it was close, last couple games I've been pretty aggressive on fourth and short. Um, this game I wanted to, you know what, we're going to need Groupie to, to get some confidence. We're going to need to kick the ball. And, and I- All right, the Notre Dame Fighting Irish head on the road to Syracuse in what was formerly known as the Carrier Dome. I didn't even look up what the new stadium's called. It'll always be the Carrier Dome in my mind. As a couple weeks ago, the knock on their schedule, or on Syracuse, was their strength of schedule. Um, they got a good win against Purdue. Um, that win looks better and better every week. Purdue is in position um, to, to be in first place in the Big Ten West, although stumbled this past weekend. They played NC State, although the Wolfpack did not have their starting quarterback in what turned out to be a 24-9 win for, for the Orange. Um, Mike, I'm curious if you caught any of the Clemson game, what, what you thought of that. Um, and so this is now Syracuse's most recent game here where they really did obviously have a really tough matchup. They, they came up short. They lost 27-21. But watching that game, does that make you more nervous, more hopeful? How are you feeling about this Syracuse team um, for Notre Dame next Saturday? Yeah. I mean, to your point earlier, uh, looking at the strength of the schedule, yeah, I don't know if I would have been able to predict like which of these teams Syracuse is playing would have been the ranked teams. But looking at it now, it's a pretty solid strength of schedule. I mean, Clemson's always tough. NC State's a great team this year, despite – the team that they played. Purdue looks pretty good this year. And last I checked, which was roughly uh, 12 minutes ago now, their strength of schedule is ranked 35th, which is just behind us at 32. And that said, we're four and three with ours and they're six and one and just barely. I mean, I'm, it's not that surprising given that the ACC is the new SEC, right? Nope, 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 nope. And, that's that's right. not true. Well, well, I tried. But these are solid teams, and it's it's solid performances. But, you know, there's no doubt that Syracuse is a great team. And just looking at them this year, and I, I hate to compare apples to oranges, but uh, they, they remind me a bit of the, the Kelly era ND teams, you know, including a sole loss to Clemson. Um, but they're a very strong defense and a pretty respectable offense, you know, Looking this closer to this weekend's Clemson and Syracuse game, for example, Syracuse took a very early lead, 
but similar to what I was kind of talking about earlier, it wasn't their offense that really put them ahead. A 14-play Clemson drive was put to an end scoreless by an interception and immediately followed up on the next possession with a fumble return TD, followed by a turnover on downs the next. And Clemson just would have to settle for a field goal to end the half 21-10. to The second half is where it gets a bit more interesting in my mind. It almost looked like the reverse of the NDUNLV second half. Clemson managed to pull off what we did in the first half, keeping the Syracuse offense to, and I'm not going to get this wrong, so i got to check and make sure the numbers are right. It was punt, 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 interception. While the Syracuse defense stayed strong at first, forcing another fumble and an interception on the drive immediately following that, they fatigued and Clemson followed up with two TDs. And the Tigers were able to claw their way back into this one. See what I did there? Claw. It's it's a paw. It's a paw. It's it's not a it's not a bird. It's 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 a tiger. It's a paw. So you know both Syracuse in this game and, and you are far from perfect. Ah, see, got it. I I got jokes too. <laughs> okay. Well, all I can say is that we're really feline it right meow. Oh God! Okay, we're okay, done. No, done. No, no, no more puns. We're, we're out. We're out of puns. No, nope, the there's a few more. Um, and, and we, we still have two segments to get through. All right. Okay. Well, tell me what you saw in this Syracuse Clemson yeah. game. So I, I saw a lot of the same things, but this was a game where, despite Clemson needing the late fourth quarter comeback, um, they had an 89 percent post game win expectancy. Clemson, as you mentioned had a lot of red zone turnovers, turnover on down, settling for field goals. So we talk about Notre Dame struggling to convert scoring opportunities. Clemson had just 2.5 points per scoring opportunity. And so, you know, they outplayed them. Clemson had a 28% havoc rate on defense. Um, Syracuse only had a 43% success rate on offense. So like Clemson's defense really dominated this game and four turnovers by Clemson and then just not finishing drives in the red zone, kept this game close in a game that otherwise Clemson really outplayed Syracuse. And so I don't want to take anything away from Syracuse. They hung with a really good team that's way better than Notre Dame, and, and there's a reason why Syracuse is favored against Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. What I'm hopeful for is a really physical road game where you had victory in your line of sight and let it slip away when Clemson did everything possible for Syracuse to win this game and put Syracuse in the driver's seat for the ACC, and Syracuse doesn't come up with it. Um, that's hard to get a football team to refocus for another tough matchup against Notre Dame. So my biggest takeaway was Clemson was for sure better than Syracuse. Syracuse is still a very solid team, but I'm hopeful that the hangover, the, the letdown, if you will, um, from that Clemson game plays to Notre Dame's advantage this weekend. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think looking at these two teams, I actually think that uh, ND matches up fairly well. I feel like earlier this year, and to an extent in the UNLV game, we lost a ton of momentum on opponent explosiveness. I mean, look at the four plays for 160 yards in the UNLV game. But our defense is typically very strong against those short and steady plays. The goal line stands, for example. And so while I think Syracuse is 
they have an okay offense. They're, it's not really going to be one where they're going to throw 50-yard bombs down the field and get quick points because that's not what they do. But we aren't going to let them make 90-yard drives on 15-plus plays because that is what we do. That's what we can stop. I don't know. What do you think of their their offense as it matches up? Yeah, I agree. Just to put some numbers to it, um, Syracuse's offense is 104th in the country in explosiveness. Now, Notre Dame's is 127th. But where that goes is, you know, we're not great at stopping explosiveness, but that's not their calling card. Um, and they're a better defensive team than they are offensive. So they rank 61st on offense in SP+. Um, you know, the one thing is they will have the better quarterback in this game. I think we have a slightly better defense than they do, but they will have the better quarterback. Garrett Trader does not belong in the elite QB category we've gone up against this year with CJ Stroud and Drake May and Tanner McKee and, and Jalen Hall. You know, we've gone up against four quarterbacks already who are probably going to have NFL careers. We've got two more in Phil Dracovich and Caleb Williams. Garrett Trader's probably not that solid, but he's pretty good. He's got a pro football focus grade of 88, which is 14th in the country. That's very elite. He's also second on the team with 300 rushing yards. So dual threat QB, something we haven't seen a ton of this year. Um, but historically, he's given Notre Dame some trouble. And look, Syracuse is not going to have the same talent that Notre Dame does on the field. They're, they're 68th in the talent composite, according to 24-7, Notre Dame's 10th. But Garrett Trader was a top 300 recruit. He's actually transferred from Mississippi State. He ranked 238 in his class. He's a solid four-star, um, you know, good pro football focus. Great. He takes care of the quarterback he's got, uh, of the football. He's got a four-to-one touchdown interception ratio. So they're not going to burn us on the deep ball for sure. But they've got solid quarterback play. They've got a really solid run game um, going. I'm, I'm looking up their stats um, in the run game. Um, they rank 27th according to pro football focus for, for what that's worth on, on their running back grades. And so it's a balanced offense. It's one that's going to move the ball consistently steady as she goes. But to your point, Mike, I think that sets up really well for us. It's been the explosive offenses in BYU and, and Ohio state. And I'm not going to call Stanford an explosive offense, but it was explosiveness in that game. And, and in the UNLV game, that was our Achilles heel. That's not Syracuse's calling card. So for sure, an offense we need to respect, especially with a good quarterback on the road. But I do agree, just looking at the advanced metrics, this one, knock on wood, should be a favorable matchup for our defense. All right. Well, then, taking a little bit of a closer look at their defense, how do you think our offense is going to match up? How do they play? Like, what's their defensive MO? Yeah, so two things that I think really stand out to me. They've got a lot of guys that play um, really high-level football, but no, like, All-American on the field. Um, and so they're just solid everywhere. I think that might be a little troubling for our um, offense to go and find something to, you know, pick on. Like, there's not a weakness here. We're not going to be able to just march the ball down the field. Or we're not going to be able to just do the Mike Mayer show um, I think they're too balanced of a defense for that to happen. That's why their defense is ranked 31st in the country, according to SP+, which is actually slightly higher than Notre Dame's defense at, at 35th. So not a top-10 defense. This isn't Ohio State. This isn't Clemson, but a very solid defense um, up and down this roster. And then where I think they really stand out 
is their front seven havoc. So their havoc in general is um, number 15 in the country, but their front seven havoc, so it comes from their defensive line and their linebackers, is fourth in the country. And it comes from a little bit of everywhere. Um, Mikel Jones, their linebacker, is their best defensive player. Um, he has a 13% pressure rate. Um, they've got another linebacker, Marlo Wax. He's got a 20% pressure rate. So they, they bring a lot of pass pressure from their linebackers. If you want to compare those pressure rates, Isaiah Foskey, our All-American defensive end, has a 13% success uh, pressure rate. Adam Alola is a 16% pressure rate. So they've got two linebackers that really get after the quarterback in a big way. And that's not to mention their edge rusher, Caleb. I might get this wrong. Oka Chukwu, who leads the team with five sacks. So front seven havoc. And then balance everywhere really sets up well. Um, got a couple corners that, that shut things down on, on the outside. And so I think the key takeaway there is this will be a stiff test for our passing offense, which has already been struggling. It's going to be a great test for our offensive line. I don't feel great that this is the game where we start, you know, seeing the balanced offense we've been looking for. This isn't the game where I think Drew Pine finds it. Um, I think it's going to have to be a run heavy, um, success. That being said, I, that's predicated on Tom Reese. Like, I think if we go and run more play action and, and run simpler quick throws, um, particularly play action that's going to slow down their pass rush, particularly quick throws that's not going to let their blitzes get home. If we are willing to do that scheme, I feel really good about our offense, but I would have said that every game this year and I've just yet to see that scheme play out. And so it makes me pretty nervous that this defense is too good for us to be one-dimensional. And Mm -hmm. we've looked like a one-dimensional offense. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, though. When we were talking earlier about, you know, Drew Pine's long throws and the low success rate, but a high success rate on some of those shorter, quicker passes, to some extent here, Syracuse may force us to do what we do well. Yeah, it, it it would be great if the <laughs> other team, if if the other team's coaches could force our coaches to make good decisions, um, that it's, would be really something. But how we'll, we'll see be. what Tom Reese cooks up. I mean, look, here, here's the only thing I'd say: this is the third best defense according to SP Plus that we've played. Ohio State's number five, Marshall's number twenty, and now Syracuse is number thirty-one. Um, we struggled in those two games and I'm not saying whatsoever that Syracuse is Ohio State's, um, you know, is at Ohio State's caliber, but this is a team now that's shown they are susceptible to offenses getting going in a one dimensional way in both directions. So Clemson had nothing going in the passing game, but they ran for nearly 300 yards last week. Like they rushed for 300 or I think it was 293 yards. Um, and then Aiden O'Connell, the, the Purdue quarterback, um, he had 400 yards, um, against this Syracuse team. So there are offenses that one dimensionally have beaten Syracuse defense, although Purdue wound up losing that game, but have put up good numbers against Syracuse defense. Um, so it's, it's definitely possible. This is a gettable game for our offense. It's just, it, it's going to be a stiff test. Yeah. I mean, hearing you talk, doing some of the research before the show, it's really hard to put it all together and say what that means for this weekend. 
to some extent, I think whoever's defense manages to put up more points can or cause more disruption will walk away the winner here. Uh, otherwise, our offense is just going to need to stay strong and hope to avoid the turnovers. But because I'm the guest on this show, I want you to tell me first, what's your projection for this game? Sure, happy to. So ESPN has Syracuse winning this game 61% of the time. SP Plus implies that Notre Dame should be about a four and a half, four to five point underdog. And right now at time of recording, the spread is three points. So Syracuse favored by a field goal in this game. Um, look, I'm, I'm forever the optimist. I think the best unit on this field, although SP Plus would disagree with me, but I think the best unit on this field is Notre Dame's defense. Um, I like them matching up, as you mentioned earlier, against a team that, you know, doesn't have a lot of explosiveness. And that's kind of the one thing that's beat our defense. So I'm feeling really good there. Um, it's hard to imagine we go and win in a shootout on the road. Um, unless if Tom Reese really dials up creativity in a way he hasn't. So I've got Notre Dame winning this one, 21-17. It's close the whole way. Neither side's going to really, you know, I I don't see either team putting up 40 points. I also don't see any, you know, offense getting shut out here. I think it'll be a really close competitive college football game and a really good litmus test for this Notre Dame team that's at a critical juncture. Like this is a big game just to make sure we at least go bowling. Um, So a big game for Marcus Freeman. I'm hoping the Clemson hangover works to our benefit. Um, But I think this is going to be a really tight, tough football game. Yeah, I agree. Uh, looking at the odds, it looks like Syracuse is expected to win somewhere in the ballpark of 25-22. I'm going to go ahead and reverse it a little bit. My projection is going to be Notre Dame 27 to Syracuse 20, and I'm going to go ahead and go bold as well and predict two estimate touchdowns. Ooh, after the fumbles. That's uh, that's big. We'll see if... um. Notre Dame offense will try to get him going and, and get his confidence back a little bit. It's called the redemption arc. I love it. All right, with that, let's move on to our third and final segment to talk some correlation coefficients on all these data metrics we talk about. Yeah, if we don't execute and we don't play well, we're not going to win. And that's the reality of where we're at and the opponents we have upcoming. And that if we play well, we have the ability to to beat anybody we play. I, I firmly believe that. When we don't play well, it's hard to make up for it and win. Um, and so we have to prepare and, and execute and play well. We have to, we'll see these next two weeks um, what type of football team we have because you're playing two really good opponents and uh, it's going to be um, really uh, a measuring sticks for how good this team is and what, what we do when it really matters. All right, I'm going to kick off this segment, Mike, and I'm going to start by just level setting on the definitions of some of the stats we talk about quite a bit on this show, but for any new listeners in particular or old listeners who maybe need a friendly reminder, walk through what some of these mean. So starting with um, some of the outputs in this, um, SP Plus is an efficiency rating system meant to predict scores against an average team. It's based on play-by-play data adjusted for strength of schedule, tempo, um, and a number of other factors that effectively tries to put a metric on 
how many points would your offense score against an average team? How many points would your defense give up against an average team? And then where do you stack up in college football? The next one is predicted points added. Haven't talked about this one as much this year on the show. We did more last year, but it's used to measure the expected points um, from the outcome on any given play. So if you have a 80-yard play, that has a predicted points added of 7. If you have a 3-yard play, it probably has an expected points added of 0.1. Like maybe it helped you a little bit, but not a lot. Um, and then points per opportunity, we've gotten to talk about this one a lot this year with our defense giving up a lot of points per opportunity and our offense not getting a lot of points per opportunity. But that measures the points per drive that you score when you are within 40 yards of the end zone. So when you get in the cusp of field goal range, how many points do you score per drive? If you score a touchdown at seven, if you turn it over on downs or miss a field goal at zero, if you kick a field goal, it's three. What's the average of all of those? That That's your points per opportunity. So we're going to look at those plus yards per game. That, that's a little easier one. It's not as advanced. It's pretty straightforward. If you get more yards, you're going to do better as an offense. If you give up fewer yards, you're going to do better as a defense. And we're going to say, how are those metrics correlated against some of these other measures we talk about? Um, success rate, explosiveness, line yards, havoc. Um, and we're actually adding one more to it after doing some of this research. I think we're going to reposition how we talk about explosiveness going forward. So success rate, as a reminder, is getting 50% of yards on first down, 70% of yards on second down, 100% of yards on third or fourth down. A really easy way to think about success rate is what percentage of your plays keeps you on schedule to keep moving the ball downfield. Um, explosiveness, explosiveness measures the predicted points added on plays that were successful. So when you had a good play that stayed on schedule, were you getting 30 yards that really ramped up your, you know, ability to go and score? Or were you like just barely getting the four yards you needed, um, to, to stay on schedule? So how explosive are you on your successful plays? And then line yards is meant as a proxy for the push that your offensive line is getting for number of running yards attributable to an offensive line. And what that measure is, what the formula is, is it's weighted as follow. A loss, a negative running play is 120% attributed to the offensive line. So if you have a five-yard loss, that counts as a six-yard loss in line yards. Um, zero to four yards, 100% of that is attributed to your line yards. If you get a four-yard rush, 100% of those yards, four yards goes to line yards. Um, five through 10... The first four goes to the offensive line. Five through 10 is split 50-50 between the running back and the offensive line. And then anything after 10 yards, that's just saying that that's the running back doing some cool stuff downfield. You know, any breakaways after the first 10 yards, you can't really describe that or prescribe that to, to the offensive line. Um, interestingly, by the way, this is not a perfect measure for yards before contact. There are some advanced data metrics that track this, the athletic reports on it, but most places, we haven't been able to get good, clean data on it. So line yards is an attempt to do that. That's used by a number of sites like collegefootballdata.com. And then the last one, I know I've been talking a lot, is Havoc, which refers to percent of plays where the defense records a tackle for loss, a forced fumble, an intercepted pass, or breaks up a pass. Um, so basically a disruptive play by the defense. What percent of your defensive plays are you generating Havoc? So I've now talked for several minutes just on defining things. Mike, before I get into some of the correlations 
um, between, say, how does success rate or explosiveness or havoc, how does that predict um, things like SP+, plus, things like points per opportunity? Which one of those stats, which I now know you've seen some of the research here, but as you were going through, which one of those stats as you listen to our show are you thinking, this is the one I really hone in on? This is the one where I think about like, wow, when this really goes well, Notre Dame does well. When it doesn't, the other team has it. Like, where have you kind of gravitated towards just as a listener of the show? I mean, I would say as a listener, I'm looking at success rate and probably explosiveness, to be honest. Those are the two that stick out to me the most. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's where I was, um, part, especially because of where we are in the modern college football game, right? Like, we think about the Alabama offenses and, you know, the Ohio State offenses and LSU and all this explosiveness and, you know, going out and getting chunky plays. Um, it's interesting. That actually had the lowest correlation. Um, explosiveness has just a 23% correlation to SP plus an 18% correlation to points per opportunity and a 23% correlation to yards per game. Another way to translate what that correlation means um, is using R-square. R-square is meant to say in, in statistical terms, if you ever go take a stats class in college, it's meant to say what percent of one variable is explained by another variable, and it's the square of the correlation coefficient. So explosiveness explains about 6% of yards per game about 6% of SP plus, about 6% of your points per scoring opportunity. So explosiveness really isn't that strong of a variable for how good you'd expect an offense or defense to be. On the flip side of that, success rate does have a really high predictive value. Success rate has an 80 to 85% correlation coefficient with SP plus yards per game, points per opportunity. It's pretty consistent across all of these metrics, which by the way makes sense because SP plus is meant to predict based on the 130 teams how you would do against the average team, you know, the average strength of schedule. Well, we're taking data from all 130 teams. So it's kind of taking the average of averages will get you an average. And so whether it's SP plus or, or yards per game, it, it's saying the same thing, but about 65% of yards of points per opportunity of SP plus for all of these metrics, about 65% is explained by your success rate. So if you stay on schedule better than other teams, two-thirds of your offensive production can be explained by that stat alone. So success rate, really important. Explosiveness, which is, again, basically how explosive are you on your successful plays, doesn't explain as much. So that actually led us to look at another data set where we just – said, forget how explosive are you in your successful plays, which is this explosive metric where I was talking about how many explosive plays do you have? Can I so ask how a many... question here before yeah. you go into it? Yeah, so, please. So correct me if I'm wrong, or, but so the explosiveness that you're describing, so that's the expected points added on successful plays. So if you consistently are having several successful plays, but they're they're all short passes. They're, they're not adding a ton of points. Is that going to dilute your overall explosiveness? Whereas if you have only one out of 10 plays, but it's just 
massively successful, but everything else is not considered successful, would you have a very high explosiveness or does the low success rating also bring that down? Correct. The theoretical max on your explosiveness would be seven. So if you have one successful play in a game, but it's an 80 yard touchdown, that one play would have a predicted points added of seven. If you go and get an 80 yard play, it's almost all the time going to be a touchdown. So an 80 yard play would and that's the only successful play you have would give you an explosiveness of seven. If you had only four yard plays, which would generally be well below one, it would be like 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5 points. So like it helps. Like you kind of get a half point every time you rush the ball for mm-hmm. four or five, six yards. If you had only successful plays, but they're all four or five, your explosiveness, like the mathematical lowest it can be, I think the lowest I've ever seen in a game is like 0.7. I think probably the theoretical limit might be like 0.3, 0.4, 0. 0.5. So that's kind of the range. Over the course of the season, one and a half to two is ridiculously good. One is really bad in a game. It might average more from like 0. 0.8 to two, two and a half. Um, but yeah, you, you're exactly right. So, um, as your success rate goes down, like if you're just a boomer bust offense and you only chuck the ball deep, you could have a very bad success rate that is very unsustainable, but a really high explosiveness. And so I think the fact that explosiveness, using another stats term, explosiveness is a function of success rate. I think that's partially why explosiveness doesn't really explain all these other stats as well. Do you know what the explosiveness was for like the UNLV game, for example? Because that's one where I'm thinking there was relatively few successful plays. In the UNLV game, Notre Dame's explosiveness was 0.9, which is really low. Like anything below one is considered really low. Like 0.7 is the lowest I've ever seen in a game. Mm-hmm. UNLV's, despite having low success rate, in fact, UNLV's success rate in this game was 27%. Offenses want to be in the high 40s. So they were successful in about half as many plays as they were hoping to be successful on. But because all of their explosiveness came on those four plays, their explosiveness rating was 1.8. So their explosiveness was really high mm-hmm. despite not being able to explain, you know, like, and that's kind of a great example. Despite a ton of explosiveness, they didn't have success on offense, um, at least in a lot of these advanced metrics. And so, um, we then decided to say, um, let's just look at chunk plays. Just how many chunk plays do you get per game? So how many plays do you get over 10 yards in a game, over 20 yards in a game, over 30 yards in a game? That was a much better predictor. Um, in fact, chunk plays for predicting yards, which makes sense. If you get more 30-yard plays, you're going to have more yards. That explained about 65% of the variation. It had about an 85% correlation rate for plays over 10 yards and over 20 yards. It also had a really high predictive value on SP plus and points per opportunity. So plays over 20 yards in a game had about a 75% correlation that translates to about 50% of SP plus. Now there's obviously a correlation between success rate and, you know, plays over 20 yards, right? Like more successful offenses are also probably going to get chunkier plays more frequently maybe not more frequently than the number of success plays, but over the number of total plays, um, those two are related. So they might be explaining some of the same things. Mm-hmm. But the big thing that stood out to me 
is success rate. If you just stay on schedule, can explain about two thirds of an offense or a defense's kind of advanced metrics, whether that's SP plus or yards or points per opportunity. Chunk plays over 20 yards can explain about half of it. So those two alone have a ton of predictive value. And I think we maybe need to stop talking about explosiveness quite as much as we have been. Um, two other metrics, line yards had about a 50% correlation with SP plus and points per opportunity. Makes sense that that's a little bit lower because SP plus is really only measuring how you're doing on running plays. And the average college football team is pretty 50 50 run and pass. So line yards, probably a really good predictor of how you're doing on running, not necessarily a predictor of how you're doing on passing. So line yards, I think is still a really helpful measure to think about how's the team's run game performing. Is their offensive line getting a good push? Um, but we'll only tell half the story of your offense. Havoc interestingly didn't have, um, that high of a correlation. Um, it had about a 60% correlation for an offense. Interestingly, and I'm not sure how the math works on this, only a 40% correlation for a defense. So for a defense, it only explained about 16% of their success. Um, on the offense, it would explain about 35% or about a third of kind of how good or bad they're doing based on how disruptive they're letting other teams be. Um, that's one I'd like to spend a little bit more time on. So many coaches, so many analysts out there are talking about our defenses creating disruption. Are they getting sacks? Are they getting passes deflected? You know, if, if you look at the premium that's been put in the NFL on drafting edge rushers to pressure the quarterback and on lockdown corners to go and, you know, shut down top elite wide receivers in the NFL, all of these teams are focused on drafting and signing free agents and max contracts at those positions. And what we're seeing is havoc says a lot. Like there's definitely a real statistical trend between Havoc and how you're doing. But first and foremost, um, success rate and chunk plays were the two biggest things that stood out, followed by line yards and Havoc. So key takeaways that I'm getting. Explosiveness will tell me how fun the game is going to be, but not who's going to win. Chunk plays may be better at telling me who's going to win. That's right. So I think one of the transitions here for Geirish Talk is we keep learning. We're in year two of this. Um, we're probably going to switch talking more about chunk plays. Um, interestingly, we can find that data for the entire season, but not game by game. So we might have to go kind of manually through you know ESPN's play-by-play to, to add up the chunk plays. But we're going to try to do that, start talking about that more, start talking about what's a good outcome or a bad outcome on, on chunk plays, but probably a better stat for us to be talking about than explosiveness. I'm looking forward to it. All right. So that Mike 2.0 has his first Geirish Talk episode in the books. Mike, thanks for being on the show. We'll be back next week to cover the Syracuse game. Look ahead to the monster matchup with Clemson coming to Notre Dame Stadium. I will also be uh, at that game. So pretty excited to get back on campus um, for that matchup against what will hopefully still be a top 10 opponent, assuming Clemson takes care of business this week. So with that, Gyrish, Gyrish. Orange. So, how'd it do? Not bad. I'd, I'd probably say it was like a good Drew Pine throw. Nice. I'll take it. Wait, does that make you Braden Lindsay or Matt Salerno? Oh, Mike Mayer, obviously. <laughs> All right, got to hand it to you. You win this uh, 
best joke for the podcast this episode. <laughs> we definitely set the pun record. <laughs> All right. See you, man. See ya.